0: Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. Today I'm going to talk about the American Indian Movement, about how it began, according to one of its earliest members, Dennis Banks, in his book, Ojibwe Warrior. And I'll discuss a little bit some of the political actions of the American Indian Movement. Dennis Banks was born on the Leech Lake Reservation in 1937, Leech Lake is in northern Minnesota. A dam, called Federal Dam, had been built near the reservation by the Army Corps of Engineers in 1882. Although this was one of the first white settlements of northern Minnesota, the upriver flooding caused by the dam negatively impacted the Ojibwe people who had already been living in the area before the dam was built. The dam helped control water flow so that a consistently navigable waterway would be present, thereby facilitating the transport of material and people. Leech Lake is within the bounds of the Chippewa National Forest. The Chippewa National Forest was founded in 1908. According to the Federal Forest Service website, there are over 3,000 archaeological and historical sites within the boundaries of the Chippewa National Forest. Here are some other interesting facts about the Chippewa National Forest. Geographically, the Chippewa National Forest contains over a thousand lakes, nearly a thousand miles of streams, and 400,000 acres of wetland. The area of the Chippewa National Forest is 1.6 million acres. The Chippewa National Forest shares a boundary with the Leech Lake Indian Reservation for about 2,000 miles. 90% of the Leech Lake Indian Reservation is situated within the National Forest. This means that the traditional territory of the Leech Lake people was incorporated into the American National Forest Scheme in the early 1900s, decades before Dennis Banks was born. Thus, Dennis Banks was able to spend his earliest childhood living off the land in a traditional Anishinaabe way with his grandparents. Before long, however, he was taken away to residential school, or boarding school as they called them in the United States. Dennis Banks was just five years old when he was taken away by agents of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in 1942. Dennis Banks spent several years at Pipestone Boarding School, away from his family for much of that duration. Banks himself writes in his book the following Later on as an adult, I realized that Indian kids were sent to Pipestone and similar institutions to separate us from our families as a matter of government policy, to separate us from our language and traditions in order to Christianize us, or acculturate us as they called it. We had daily indoctrinations in Catholic beliefs. In English classes, the aim was to make us forget that we were Indians. There were no pictures on the walls of Native Americans or Indian heroes such as Sitting Bull or Geronimo. Nothing could be seen that would indicate we were in a school for Indian children. I could speak some Chippewa when I arrived at Pipestone, but after nine years in that place I forgot it because we were forbidden to speak our native languages. Our teachers only allowed us to speak English. End quote. Despite the supposed separation of church and state that the American Constitution is based upon, thousands of children like Dennis Banks were forced through the psychological grindhouse of boarding schools in order to kill the Indian and save the child, as the famous Canadian epitaph goes. Dennis Banks hits the nail on the head when he says that Indian kids were sent to institutions to separate children from families as a matter of government policy. Canada had the same policy north of the medicine line. That policy, as I have talked about in a previous episode, had its roots in government dealings with Indians from over a century prior to Dennis Banks's birth. He was born into a world that openly and proudly oppressed indigenous peoples and groups. He had tried many times to run away from boarding school, only to be tracked down, returned, and physically beaten. But he wasn't beaten by teachers. Instead, the teachers would have the other students beat the returned runaways. Again, Dennis Banks, quote, Four times I ran away, and four times I was brought back. The school's punishment for running away was the hotline. I had to run between two rows of other kids who held sticks and switches. As I passed through the line, they lashed out at me. It was like code red in the military when you were disciplined by your fellow students. End quote. During the summer months, while Dennis Banks was still a student at Pipestone Boarding School, he was unable to go home. Instead, he and about 40 or 50 other students who could not get to their home reserves for the summer took care of the campus maintenance. Pro bono, of course. Dennis Banks, like many boarding school survivors, had to grow up fast. In 1954, when he was just 17 years old, Dennis Banks joined the United States Air Force. He had to have his mother's permission to do so. Dennis Banks was posted to a base in Japan and lived quite a while there. He even got married to a Japanese woman who, when he returned to America, never saw him again. Dennis Banks lived in Minneapolis in the 1960s. This is where the American Indian Movement has its roots. The American Indian Movement was founded in 1968 and grew from a need for Indian people to protect themselves from the police. Let me describe what Minneapolis was like for Indians in the 1960s, as described in the book by Dennis Banks. He describes, for instance, being rounded up by local police for slave labor while surviving in the Indian ghetto of St. Paul, Minnesota. Quote, The years after Japan were incredibly hard. Friendships that went back a long time helped me survive the Indian ghettos of St. Paul and Minneapolis. Old friends from the boarding school who had gone into the military helped one another hang in there. Guys like Fred Morgan, BoJack george mitchell and floyd westerman as the years went by we would inevitably run into each other along the way usually in saint paul's indian town in those days jobs were few and far between still we survived mostly in the slave labor markets of minneapolis chicago and milwaukee nothing changed our friendships we supported one another in our struggles and we laughed a lot of those damned hard ways away. We were all drinking in those years, not really caring what the booze was doing to our health, sometimes going on binges for days and even weeks. But when we were together we had good times. Often we spent the night talking of the old days, laughing and remembering all the crazy things we used to do. We had all served in the military and during our get-togethers would talk about our boarding school buddies who had never come back from the wars in Korea or Vietnam. Many times we cried. We eventually all lived on 4th Avenue, the center of Indian life in Minneapolis. Every year the arrival of spring meant the opening of a season for hunting Indians, who provided slave labor for both the Twin Cities and the state of Minnesota. Together with the first robin came the annual renewal of the quota system, which meant that the police had to arrest a certain number of Indians, usually about 200 every week, to provide unpaid labor for the workhouse and various city projects. Every Saturday night at 9 o'clock, the police arrived to conduct their manhunt. You could set your watch by the arrival of the paddy wagons. The cops concentrated on the Indian bars. They would bring their paddy wagons around behind a bar and open the back doors. Then they would go around to the front and chase everybody toward the rear. As soon as you went through the back door, you were in the paddy wagon. The cops' favorite targets were Bud's Bar on Franklin Avenue and the Corral, which was less than a 100 yards away. They rounded us up like cattle and booked us on drunk and disorderly charges, even if we were neither. During the early 60's I got caught in that dragnet maybe 25 times. Monday mornings I would sometimes end up at the workhouse or, or they would put me to work on a farm. Once this happened to me three weekends in a row. I would go back to the same bar and get caught again. We were sent out to clean up stadiums and the convention center which would take two or three days. Then they would tell us, okay you guys, you can be released now. It took me a while to realize that the police raided only the Indian bars, and never the white ones. End quote. Is it really the home of the brave and the land of the free? Dennis Banks provides a statistic about Minnesota prison populations that is strikingly similar to statistics in Canada. He writes, For Indians, doing time in jail is almost a traditional rite of passage. About 1% of the Minnesota population is American Indian, but more than one-third of all prison inmates in the state are Indians. We wind up in the slammer because we are Indians, because we are too poor to raise bail, and because we cannot pay for an attorney. We have to deal with a public defender who in most cases persuades us to make a quick plea bargain deal." Quote. So those are some examples of systemic racism from the 1960s. Earlier this year in 2020, 50 years after the creation of AIM to address police brutality, George Floyd was killed by a police officer who had had a history of complaints and over-aggressive actions. There are reasons why the American Indian Movement exists, and for those reasons, members of AIM have been involved in tense and even combative situations across Turtle Island over the years. So what exactly is the American Indian Movement? The American Indian Movement developed because there was a need for Native people to have access to protection, justice, and legal aid. In 1966, two years before the beginning of AIM, Dennis Banks was in prison. He and an accomplice, a white man named Bill, had stolen a lot of bags of groceries and got busted. Dennis got five years in prison, whereas his partner Bill was merely sentenced to two years of probation without any time behind bars. Banks writes, quote, I got five years whereas he was sentenced to two years of probation and was released immediately. At first I thought it was because he had an attorney. It didn't occur to me that it was because I was an Indian who had been saddled with a white judge and a white arresting officer. I was stuck at Stillwater, the Minnesota State Prison from early 1966 to May of 1968. Inside the pen, I began to read about Indian history and became politicized in the process. I would read the papers and see that demonstrations about civil rights and the Vietnam War were going on all over the country. I realized that I desperately wanted to be part of a movement for Indian people, but we had no organization to address social reform, human rights, or treaty rights. We had 19 Indian organizations for social welfare and gathering clothes. These were needed, but there was no movement specifically for addressing the police brutality that was an everyday fact for Indian people, or the discrimination in housing and employment in Minneapolis. Nor were there ever Indians speaking at those big rallies I saw on TV about the war in Vietnam or minority issues. Helpless in my prison cell, I felt that the chances for creating an effective Indian rights organization were passing us by. I had plenty of time to research the issues of American Indian civil rights since I was in a maximum security prison for two and a half years, with nine months of that in solitary confinement. This nine month period came about because I did not want to spend all my time making twine and Minnesota license plates. I refused to be a typical prison inmate. I was different from the others, so they locked me up in a cell by myself. I started to educate myself while in solitary and found that there was a lot of social and political unrest happening on the outside. I began to follow the anti-war movement, the marches and the protests, the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, the Weathermen and the Black Panthers. Inside Stillwater, I made a commitment to myself that there would be an Indian movement. End quote. Dennis Banks got out of prison in May of 1968. By July 28 of that same year, the first American Indian Movement meeting was held in a basement church. At the meeting, people spoke their minds about the issues they faced. They talked about politics and history, and the plight of native people in America. Then one person asked about what the police in Minneapolis and St. Paul had been doing to the natives there. As Dennis writes, There was great enthusiasm to get our meetings going. We were on a roll. The people wanted action, and our first priority was to deal with police brutality. In Minneapolis, only 10% of the population was Indian, but 70% of the inmates in the city's jails were our people. We painted three old cars red. Clyde had one, George had one, and I had the other. With these cars, we immediately established an Indian patrol to prevent the police from further harassing our people. We patterned it after the patrol created by the Black Panthers in Oakland. Quote. The founding members of the American Indian movement struggled with the notion of necessary violence. Dennis Banks didn't want AIM to be seen as a violent group, but realized that facing armed and racist police may require a show of strength. In the words of Dennis Banks, Racism was considered by most Americans to be only a black-white issue, a view that ignored the Indian as a significant minority. AIM went to the chief of police to point out the particular brutality toward Native people on the streets of Minneapolis. He said, Nah, there's no racism here. We told him, We can prove it to you. We will bring you films and photographs that show your people using excessive force all the time and acting in a sadistic way, End quote. The American Indian Movement did just what they said they were going to do. In their red-painted cars and matching red berets, the members of the newly formed American Indian Movement went down to Franklin Avenue where the so-called Indian Bars were. They stationed themselves at the front doors. Banks recalls that event in his book, writing, quote, When the police turned onto Franklin Avenue, we would yell, Here they come! We had two cameras to film footage of the police storming into the bars, rounding up people, making arrests indiscriminately, and hitting people with their nightsticks. We shot the scene from inside our cars, always taking care to avoid being noticed by the cops. We then had evidence on film and tape that the cops, only rounded up Indians and not a single white person. Later, the booking sergeant confirmed what we already knew. 150 Indians had been arrested that weekend. Our next step was to empty out those two bars just before the police would arrive. We pulled out the drunk patrons and gave them rides home. By the time the police arrived, there was nobody left to arrest. After we started our red car patrols, The number of arrests dropped dramatically." Those patrols undertaken by the American Indian movement as a defense against police abuse was only the beginning. In November 1969, AIM members supported the Pitt River Indians of Northern California in their struggle to reclaim their ancestral rights of hunting and fishing. To do this, Groups of Indians from all over North America arrived in San Francisco to occupy Alcatraz as a show of support and solidarity. The occupation of Alcatraz went on from November 1969 to June 1971. By 1970, the American Indian Movement was making headlines. The American Indian Movement had grown. There were now chapters of AIM in multiple cities, and they were active. The Minnesota chapter of AIM took over an abandoned naval station at the Minneapolis St. Paul International Airport. Members of AIM involved in that takeover were arrested and jailed. However, around that same time, the Milwaukee chapter of AIM occupied an abandoned Coast Guard station on Lake Michigan. The Milwaukee chapter was at that site for a year because the occupation remained nonviolent. The police left the occupiers alone. At that occupied Milwaukee site, AIM was then able to set up a detox center and a community school. Both AIM chapters had claimed legitimacy for taking over the abandoned federal sites via rights due under the Treaty of 1868. The Treaty of 1868 exposits that land that had fallen into disuse by the government would be available for Native people to reclaim. This is why native people often say, honor the treaties. In 1970, the American Indian movement occupied Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is where enormous heads of past American presidents have been carved into the mountainside. It's important to know that Mount Rushmore is geographically part of the Black Hills region and that the Black Hills are the traditional and sacred territory of both the Lakota and Cheyenne peoples. It's also important to know that the American Indian movement didn't just reclaim unused federal land. AIM also directed its resources into achieving justice for the wanton murder of a man in Nebraska named Raymond Yellow Thunder. Yellow Thunder had been grabbed off the street by two brothers, Leslie and Melvin Hare. The brothers, quote, dragged him into the Gordon American Legion Post Number 34, where a dance was in progress. The Hare brothers stripped Raymond Yellow Thunder naked from the waist down and forced him to dance at gunpoint to provide entertainment for the crowd. End quote. Other people at the dance then joined in on the beating of Raymond Yellow Thunder. When the good old boys and good old gals got bored of humiliating and beating the man, the Hare brothers dragged Raymond Yellow Thunder back out onto the street. Days later, Yellow Thunder's body was found stuffed either into the trunk of the Hare's car or, according to one report, in his own pickup truck. But because the victim was an Indian, justice was skewed. The Hare brothers did get arrested on a charge of second-degree manslaughter, but they were immediately released without bail pending trial. Yellow Thunder's family wanted justice. They wanted the Hare brothers tried for murder, but they could not find anyone willing to pursue the case. But then the American Indian Movement got wind of what was happening in Nebraska. They got asked by a relative of Raymond Yellow Thunder to help in some way to find justice for the murdered man. To make a long story short, AIM arrived in Nebraska in a caravan of buses and cars. The AIM members met up with local Native people who had set up a flatbed truck with microphones and speakers. And without violence, AIM took over the town hall and mayor's office. Then AIM created an impromptu grand jury to hear complaints made by local Lakota people who had suffered injustices in that part of Nebraska. Again, as in Minneapolis, police brutality was a top priority. Dennis Banks writes, We offered proof of constant harassment of Indians by law enforcement officers that was routinely ignored or dismissed without investigation. For example, Several Indian women accused a police officer named John Paul of raping Native girls. One of the women stated, He waits outside the cafe for any Indian woman, follows her for about a block, forces her into his police car, and takes her two or three miles out of town. Then he abuses her. Marvin Ghostbear spoke of one incident where an Indian girl was brought into jail by Officer John Paul, who tried to fondle her. When she resisted his advances, John Paul took her into a cell where Marvin could hear her crying and screaming for help. He could do nothing because he was locked up himself. As a result of pressure from AIM, the mayor and the chief of police agreed to fire this man. End quote. So, because of the pressure created by the American Indian movement, instances of blatant police discrimination against and abuse of native people. Were exposed and rectified. As for the Hare brothers, the two sons of a wealthy landowner, they did stand trial and were both convicted of manslaughter. One of the murderers got six years in jail, while the other got two years. After hearing all this, am I really supposed to believe that justice is blind and that there is justice for all? Like I said, there's a reason why AIM exists, and they still exist. I happened to catch the tail end of an interview with AIM member Madonna Thunderhawk recently. In it, she said basically that Obama and Trump are different sides of the same coin.
1: Well, from our point of view, American policy has always been a policy of taking. So just the fact that Donald Trump you know, has a bigger mouth and doesn't no issues is is beside the point for us as a people because we are concerned always about federal American Indian policy, which changes with politics. Right. So for you, uh, Trump, nothing new. Trump is like Obama. There's no difference except the big mouth. Big mouth and policy, because the ones that are backing him up and putting him there control the Senate of the United States government. That's where the real danger is. It's not Trump. He's just a big mouth, that's all. But he's been considered uh, as a racist uh, by many. Well, of course, but again, we are—we know politics and how it affects us. So you know, we—it's always been like I said, the politics of taking. So the fact that he brings Obama, uh, you know, stops Dapple pipeline, and uh, Trump brings it back. And he brings back KXL. That's the politics I'm talking about. The politics of taking. We understand that for decades, you know. Right. So it's nothing new.
0: Thunderhawk answers one more question about hope. She says that because Native people are land-based and because colonial government policy is a policy of taking, each generation has a responsibility to do what you can to protect the land for future generations. Our languages and traditions come from the land itself. That's why it's important to protect it. In the words of the American Indian Movement Grand Governing Council, AIM was born out of the dark violence of police brutality and voiceless despair of Indian people in the courts of Minneapolis, Minnesota. AIM was born because a few knew that it was enough enough to endure for themselves and all others like them who are people without power or rights. AIM people have known the insides of jails, the long wait, the no appeal of the courts for Indians, because many of them were there. From the inside, AIM people are cleansing themselves. Many have returned to the old traditional religions of their tribes, away from the confused notions of a society that has made them slaves of their own unguided lives. AIM is first a spiritual movement, a religious rebirth, and then the rebirth of dignity and pride in a people. AIM succeeds because they have beliefs to act upon. The American Indian movement is attempting to connect the realities of the past with the promise of tomorrow. They are people in a hurry, because they know that the dignity of a person can be snuffed by despair and a belt in a cell of a city jail. They know that the deepest hopes of the old people could die with them. They know that the Indian way is not tolerated in white America because it is not acknowledged as a decent way to be. Sovereignty, land and culture cannot endure if a people is not left in peace. The American Indian movement is then the warrior's class of this century who are bound to the bond of the drum, who vote with their bodies instead of their mouths. Their business is hope. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.